Now tonight's message, as you know, is dealing with the topic of the mark of the beast. Now it's very interesting that people really want to know about the mark of the beast, but we're going to find out that there's actually two marks. Did you know that God's people have a mark in the book of Revelation? We're going to be looking at the mark of the beast and also at the mark that God gives to His people. And I don't know about you, but if I were to pick one mark, either I had to be marked by allegiance to the beast or marked by allegiance to God, which one do you think you would want? To God, right? And that's what we're going to look at this evening, is we're going to be diving in and discussing this topic of what is the mark of the beast and understanding it a little bit more. Now this is a continuation of what we started Saturday morning dealing with the Antichrist, right? We're looking at the mark of the beast, and we realize that the Antichrist power is the beast described there. And so we're going to do a little bit of review for those who missed it, and try not to uh, breeze past too quickly so that we all can be caught up to speed. But before we begin, we really need the Holy Spirit for this one. If it's something that the Bible says is going to be so widespread, the Bible says that the book of Revelation, talking about the mark of the beast, is that it's something that everyone will experience except those whose names are in the Lamb's book of life. In other words, this is a very sober topic, right? I would much rather just talk about the goodness of God, right? We see the goodness of God, and it's so beautiful to look at, but also God does warn us, right? And that's why God has given us this message of the, of the mark of the beast, and we actually find it in connection with what Revelation calls the everlasting gospel. So this is what we're looking at, but we need the Lord to prepare our hearts and to speak to us, amen? So why don't we ask for the Lord's blessing now? Father in heaven, we thank you so much for the privilege of being gathered together. Lord, you know the topic we're getting ready to study. Father, you know that we're just finite human beings that are in desperate need of your Holy Spirit to teach us. Father, we don't want to just know the things that we think are right, but Father, we want to see things from Your Word so clearly. Lord, we pray that You would speak to each one of our hearts and that You would guide our minds. And that, Father, we would be open to Your truth and that we would see it clearly and by Your grace and by the power of Jesus working in our lives that we'd be willing to follow You. Lord, we just pray that You would give us wisdom now. You promised that if anyone lacks it, that we can ask of You and You would give it to us liberally. And so, Lord, we claim that promise. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Well, if any of you have noticed, there's a lot of confusion surrounding the topic of the mark of the beast. Would you agree? If you Google the mark of the beast, you're going to find all sorts of things. And some people think that the mark of the beast is having a little microchip implanted into your hand or into your forehead, right? Or they think that the mark of the beast is a tattoo of 666 on your hand or, or whatever else it might be. Some people even say that the mark of the beast is a cashless society. Now, these are a bunch of different questions and these are different options of what the mark of the beast could be. But what we want to look at tonight is what does the Bible say about the mark of the beast? Now, we started getting into this topic a little bit a previous night, talking about is it a literal mark or not? And we'll go back to that because some of us weren't here. But the question that we're looking at is what is the mark of the beast? Now, in order to understand this, at least for me, I have to compartmentalize things. And so this is something that helped me compartmentalize it, and this is going to be kind of the outline of our study for anyone taking notes, this is what it'll be, as we're trying to understand this mark, and in order to understand the mark of the beast, there's five things that we need to understand. Number one is who is the beast, right? If someone is giving a mark, 
Well, we need to know who's giving that and in connection with who is this mark coming from? Who is the beast? Number two is what is 666, right? A lot of people think 666 is the mark of the beast and we're going to look at that tonight. Revelation chapter 13 verse 18 talks about that and we want to know what the Bible says. Number three is it says what is the mark of the beast all about? In other words, we have to know who it's from and what 666 is, but also what is the Mark of the Beast issue all about? We're going to be looking at that in detail. And number four, do God's people also have a quote-unquote mark? In other words, is there a, a distinction between God's people and the people who are following after the beast? Now, notice number five as well. It says what is the mark of the beast. Now these are all different, five different subcategories of what we're going to be looking at tonight and we'll try to go through quickly because I don't want anyone to fall asleep but thankfully we brought in the hard chairs tonight so you can't get comfortable and making sure that we'll keep you awake. But we're going to be looking at this topic and the mark of the beast, we're going to start our topic or our study in Revelation chapter 13. Now we do have this one on the screen and we will look at it together. Revelation chapter 13 beginning our study of the mark of the beast. Now, for those of you, just as a brief recap before we fully get into it, on Saturday morning, this last Saturday morning, we started looking at the Antichrist power that we found was in Daniel chapter 7, right? 2 Thessalonians, Paul talks about it as well. Revelation chapter 13, all of them are talking about the same beast power. Now, when we use the word beast, we're not being derogatory, right? It's just another word for animal or a symbolic of a kingdom that it represents. And notice Revelation chapter 13 is where we were last time, looking at verses 1 through 8. And right after that, you see that there's a second beast that comes on the scene, and it's either called the land beast or the beast from the earth. And this is what we'll be looking at specifically Saturday morning, understanding how that fits. But at the end of all that, talking about the Antichrist power and the person that we identified or the system that we identified Saturday morning, notice what it says in Revelation chapter 13 and verse 16. It says, He causes all, both small and great, rich and poor, free and slave, to receive a mark on their right hands and on their what? Their foreheads. And that no one may buy or sell except one who has the mark or the name of the beast or the number of his name. Now, I don't know about you, when I read things like this in the Bible, it's kind of sobering. You realize that this is something that's going to be catastrophic for all of the world. Now, the, the problem with human nature is we typically always think, well, that's really bad for the other guy, right? Because I'm never going to go through that. How many of you have ever seen someone else broken down on the side of the road or with a flat tire or in a car accident and thought, man, I'm, I'm sure glad that's not me, right? Can it happen to us as well? Yeah, I've been on the side of the road many times. And we realize that this Mark of the Beast issue is not just going to be something small, but it's going to be involving the whole world, and you and I are going to be involved in it if time should last. Now, the first thing that we want to see is that the Mark is talked about as the Mark of the Beast, and we're going to start by looking at the question, who is this beast? Now, we went through this extensively. We spent an hour on this subject Saturday morning, and so if you missed it, or you feel like we're not doing justice to the text, make sure to get a copy of the CD, night number 13, and also the handout, and we'll make sure to try to bring you up to speed, but that deals with it specifically. But in that night, or in that morning session actually, we, dealed with, we dealt with several characteristics of what this beast would be, and notice what these characteristics are, right? These are what we found together. This is nothing new. This is just the same list from the same presentation. 
And the question is, who is the beast? And notice what the characteristics were that we found. And primarily, these came from Daniel chapter 7, and then in a combination with Revelation chapter 13. Now look at these together. We saw that it arises it arises out of divided Europe. Do you guys remember this? There was the beast, and the beast had how many horns? Ten horns, right? And those ten horns were the same as the ten toes of the statue of Daniel chapter 2, which were the divided, uh, uh, the divided continent of Europe, right? We saw that the, the image was representing, and the beasts of Daniel chapter 7, represented four specific kingdoms that it was Babylon, Medo-Persia, Greece, and then Rome, right? And Rome was different from all the other kingdoms. Rome didn't fall to another nation, but instead it did what? It divided. And we realized that it divided into ten major parts, which we've listed already. And when the Bible is talking about this little horn power, it says that it comes up among the ten. In other words, it comes up out of divided Europe. Now, the Bible also tells us that because of that, that we know that the little horn power has to arise to its power and its state after the time of 476 A.D. Now you say, why 476 A.D.? Well, when did Western Rome fall? We realize that it was 476 A.D. You can go back to your history books. You can look at it very clearly. And if this power is coming out of divided Europe, Europe had to be divided for it to come out of, right? That's just common logic. And we realize that it arises out of divided Europe, that it arises after 476 A.D., and also the Bible said that when it comes up, that it would uproot three kings. Do you remember reading this? You can go right back through Daniel chapter 7 and read it for yourselves. It uproots three kings, and we saw that those were the Heruli, the Vandals, and the Ostrogoths, the three barbarian tribes that were uprooted by the Antichrist power when it came to premacy. And number four, we saw that this beast power would be one that blasphemes God. You remember looking at that. Now, we looked at a couple Bible examples of what it meant to blaspheme God when we were going through the study together. And just to recap quickly, what were those two things that it means to blaspheme? Do you remember what the Bible told us? Takes the place of God. Okay, someone who claims, even though they're a man, claims the place of God. And there's one other characteristic. Do you guys remember? Claiming to forgive sins, right? Remember when Jesus was in the interaction with the Jews and he says, your sins be forgiven you. And they say, how can you be a man claim to forgive sins? You're blaspheming, right? So we see that blasphemy is one who claims to be God and someone who claims to forgive sins. And that's what the Bible says this Antichrist power would do. Now, number five says that they would persecute God's people. Now, we, we identified the power and we saw clearly that they were persecuting God's people. And the, number six says that they would reign for 1260 years. Now, when we identified the Antichrist Saturday morning, which we'll identify in just a moment again for clarity, we saw that they started their reign in 538 A.D., right? That's what very clearly came from the Bible and from history, that it was 537 A.D., and then in 1798, they were taken away from their, they didn't any longer have civil power, right? We saw that this was someone who had religious and civil power, and that civil power was put away, and the, the power was placed into prison, and they fell, and that was to the General Berthier and the French army. Now, we'll look at this a little bit more specifically. Now, number seven, we see that this is a universal religious power. Now, you say, how do you know it's universally religious? Well, notice what Revelation chapter 13, verse 4, it says all the world would worship the beast, right? This is a universal thing taking place. And number eight, we're told that it's a strong political power. Same verse, it says, who's able to make war with the beast? And I asked the question last time, when's the last time your church went to war? 
And none of you said that it was recent, right? You haven't ever been to war because you realize that political powers are the ones that go to war. And so we realize that the Antichrist power is both a universal religious power and also a strong political power. Now I want to ask you, who did we find that this was? Now we we saw in our study together that we were not alone in our understanding of this, right? The, The Protestant Reformation brought to light the fact that the church of Rome was the Antichrist power. Martin Luther, John Huss, Wesley, Wycliffe, all these others saw that the very church that was claiming to be moving on behalf of God was actually one that was functioning on behalf of the beast, and that was the Roman Catholic Church. Now this is once again we talked about, we're not pointing fingers at anyone. This is, we're not talking about the people in the system, are we? We're talking about the system itself that claims to forgive sins, that claims to be God on earth. We'll look at some of those claims together tonight. And the Bible is saying anyone who threatens to take the place of God, we should stay away from, right? We shouldn't have any partnership with that. But we realize that there's very loving and sincere people in all religions, and especially the Roman Catholic Church. And I told you that last time that my best friend in high school was a Roman Catholic, right? It's not that this is a hate speech, but we realize that this is clearly what the Bible's saying. Now, it was painful for Martin Luther to admit the fact that the Roman Catholic Church was the Antichrist, wasn't it? He loved his church. That's the way he was raised. That's everything that he knew. But he realized that it was a power that was standing in the way of God and claiming to take the place of God. Now, something that we're going to see now is an identifying characteristic that we didn't look at before, and this is specifically dealing with the mark of the beast. Now, we already looked at who is the beast, and we realized that the beast is the Roman Catholic system or the Roman Catholic Church, and the question comes, well, then what is 666, right? Is 666 itself the mark of the beast? Well, Why don't we open our Bibles again, because we don't want our own opinions, but notice what Revelation chapter 13 and verse 18 says. It says, here is wisdom. Let him who has understanding do what? What does that say? Calculate the number of the beast. Now that sounds a little bit interesting for people in our time, but it says calculate the number of the beast, for it is the number of a what? Of a man, and his number is six. Six, six. Now, how many of you have ever been in the store and your total came up to $6.66 and you freaked out? Right? Now, this is not what the Bible is talking about. The Bible is not talking about just any sixes that are in a row, but it uses a specific thing and it says you can calculate the number of the man who is at the head of the system. Now, you might be saying, how can you calculate the numbers? Well, many of you know that in Roman numerals, every letter has value, right? You're, you're familiar with that. The letter X, what does it equal? 10. A V is 5, right? We're familiar with those things. We learned that in school. And what we realize is that the mark of the beast is not something that's going to be tattooed on our forehead, right? Is Satan going to be obvious in the final deception? Can it be deception and be obvious? No, right? The mark of the beast is not going to be tattooed on the forehead. It's not going to be tattooed on the right hand. But we realize that the, the number 666 is simply the number of a man. Now, there's a few names that you can do this with, but I want to show you something very quickly. Now, this is Vicarius Filii Dei, and this is one of the prominent names that the Catholic Church goes by. 
one of the pope's names or the priest's names, and it means one who stands in the place of the Son of God. Now, I don't know how you can have such a name and not claim blasphemy, right? One who stands in the very place of the Son of God. Okay. Well, we also know that the Roman Catholic Church primarily, their, their main language is what? Latin, right? How many of you have ever been to a Catholic church and what's the services? It's in Latin, right? When the Pope reads or when the priest reads or whatever else. And this is itself in Latin, which each letter has numerical value. Now, in English, do our letters have numerical value? I don't really think so, right? But we realize that it does here, so we're just going to use their very system and see what the number of this name is. Now, notice with me, and I would, I would inc uh, invite you to do this at home on your own time, realizing that you're not having the, the uh, wool pulled over your eyes, right? But notice the first word, vicarious. How much is it worth? What's the value of that word there? 112, right? For those of you who can do some quick math. Now, notice the next word is filii, and we realize that it has the value of 53. And dei, which means God, has the value of 501. Now, when you put those together, vicarious filii dei, you realize that it comes up to the number of 666. Now, you might be thinking, well, can you do this with anyone's number? Let me ask you a question. If you go to your work and your boss just happens to have a name that when it's added up equals 666, does that mean he's the mark of the beast or the antichrist? No, it means you just might not like him, right? But it doesn't really mean that that's him. But what the Bible is saying in conjunction with all of the other things that we've seen so far leading up and pointing to the Roman Catholic Church, we're seeing that this is also another identifying mark, not the mark of the beast itself, but an identifying mark of the Catholic Church. I wish we had an open floor because I can almost see questions on the forehead and I wish we could talk about it a little bit. Maybe it's not crystal clear, but we can, we can get to it or write it down or talk a little bit afterward. But we realize that this is just one of the examples where the number we calculated the number of his name and what was the value, right? That wasn't any guesswork. It's by the same numerical system that you would find anywhere. Now the third question that we want to look at together is what is the mark of the beast all about, right? If it's, if, who is the beast? We realize that it's the Roman Catholic system. We realize what is 666? Well, it's simply the number of the man or the number of their title or the number of their name which comes out to 666. It's not something we have to be scared out in the checkout line. But number three is what is the mark of the beast all about? So we're going to realize here now the question that we're dealing with is what is the mark of the beast all about, right? This is what we're wondering. What is the mark of the beast all about? Well, notice that Revelation 13 tells us about the mark of the beast, but also Revelation chapter 14, verses 9 and 10. And this is where we're going to look at it a little bit more. Revelation chapter 14, verse 9 and 10. And we've looked at these messages, and they're called the three angels' messages. And we looked at the first angel's message in detail. We'll look at the second angel's message in detail in a couple nights. And now we're looking at the third angel. And notice what it says. Revelation chapter 14, verse 9 and 10. It says, Then a third angel followed them, saying with a loud voice, If anyone worships the beast in his image and receives his mark on his forehead or on his hand, he himself also, or he himself shall also drink of the wine of the wrath of what? Of God. Now the Bible here talks about the mark of the beast being something that we receive either in our forehead or our where? 
our hand. Now this is going to be a recap for those of you who were here the other night, but I want to ask the question, is the Bible being literal here when it says that we're going to get a physical mark that's either in our forehead or in our hand? Because if it's a physical mark, I would like to know, right? We'd like to be a little bit aware of that. But if it's not, we want to be aware of that as well because we don't want to be deceived in either way. And the question is, is it a physical mark? Now I'm going to take you to the same place that we went the other night, and this is Deuteronomy chapter 6. Remember we went here? Deuteronomy chapter 6, looking at the question of is this a physical mark on the forehead or on the hand, notice in Deuteronomy chapter 6 that God deals with a very similar issue. Not necessarily the mark of the beast, but there's the same terminology of there's a mark to be put on our forehead and on our hand. Deuteronomy chapter 6, and just for the sake of being in our Bibles, this one is not on the screen, but you can make sure to flip open to it. Deuteronomy chapter 6 and verse 4. Notice what it says. This will be a familiar verse to you. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your what? Strength, right? We've heard Jesus talking about that. That's where he repeats it from. He's getting it from here. Now notice verse 6. And these words which I command you today shall be where? In your heart. Okay? Now this is interesting. Jesus is saying these words that I command you today, they shall be in your heart. In other words, the law of God, the words of God, remembering the goodness of God, is to be in our heart. And notice what he says in verse 7. You shall teach them diligently to your children, and you shall talk of them when you sit in your house, when you walk by the way, when you lie down, and when you rise up. You shall bind them as a sign on your where? Hand. And they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. Now, I don't know about you, but my eyes are located right next to my forehead, right? So you have this idea that there's a mark or there's supposed to be a sign that's put on the hand and on the where? The forehead. Now, was God specifically telling the Jewish people that they were supposed to take the words that God had told them and put it on their hand and on their forehead? Well, if you've ever been to Jerusalem, you'll see people who look like that. And what's very interesting is these are called phylacteries, right? Is that a correct pronunciation? I, I'm, I'm not positive. I didn't write it down, and so I'm just going from memory. But these are the little boxes. Notice where is it at? Well, it's like frontlets on his eyes. Maybe it got a little inconvenient when it kept sliding down, so they put it up on the head. And then there's, notice this leather band wrapped around his arm with a little box right there, right? It says it'll be a sign on his arm as well. And was this what God was talking about when he says, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, and strength, and these words which I command you today shall be on your forehead. Is that what he said? No, no, no. They shall be in your what? Heart or your mind, right? In other words, what's just a few short pieces of measurement away from your forehead? What's right there? What's right behind your forehead? Your brain, right? Your mind. And Jesus is more concerned about our mind then he is concerned about what's on the outside of our forehead. Would you agree with that? Now, if the mark of the beast was simply something that wasn't even skin deep, do you think it would be something we really need to worry about? If it's just a small little mark, who really cares? I mean, is that really ever something that God's been consistent with? Has God ever been concerned about little marks somewhere on the forehead or the hand? No. But we realize that God is more concerned about the heart. Now, do you think Satan is more concerned about having your heart or more concerned about having something put on your forehead? 
What has Satan always wanted from the beginning? Remember we looked at the study, Daniel, or we looked in night number three, that Satan has always wanted worship. Would you agree with that? Now, can you worship someone with just with an outward box on your forehead? No, no, they need your heart. Now, notice with me, as we're getting ready to understand what is this mark of the beast issue all about, we're going to go to Revelation chapter 13 and just open your Bibles. It'll be a lot easier if we can just skip from verse to verse really briefly to look at the one continuous word that we find in Revelation chapter 13. Revelation chapter 13, and we're trying to see what is this worship all about? Or what is this, what is this issue all about with the mark of the beast? Is it truly about something just on the outside of our forehead? Or is it something that God is concerned with the heart? Well, we see it's clear that God is concerned with the heart, but notice the issues surrounding the mark of the beast. Revelation chapter 13 and verse 4. Are you there? Revelation chapter 13, verse 4. Notice what it says. So they, what's that word? Worshipped the dragon who gave authority to the beast, and they worshipped the beast, saying, who is like the beast and who is able to make war with them? What are the words we find repeated twice? Worship, right? Okay, that's just interesting. Skip down to verse 8. Revelation chapter 13, verse 8. All who dwell on the earth will do what? Worship Him. All right, verse 12. Notice what verse 12 says. And it says, And He exercises all the authority of the first beast in His presence and causes the earth and those who dwell in it to do what? To worship. Are you seeing the theme here? Notice verse 15. He was granted power to give breath to the image of the beast that the image of the beast should both speak and cause as many as would not, what? Worship the image of the beast to be killed. Now, if you just had Revelation chapter 13 as the only chapter talking about the mark of the beast, which is the primary chapter for it, what do you think the major issue is about? Do you think it's about some outward sign on the forehead? Or do you think it's about the heart of the issue and who we worship? Would you agree with that? See, the mark of the beast is not just talking about what we have, but really the last battle that we see in Revelation chapter 13, that the mark of the beast issue is a battle for allegiance that revolves around worship. Now, if it revolves around worship, then this is something that hits even a little closer home to you and I, right? How many of you, we're here because we worship God, right? We're Christians or we go to church, whatever else. And Satan is specifically targeting those who are worshiping. Now, we see that all of the world will eventually be involved in this. But we have to think, well, our little antennas need to go up. What is going to be happening if this is revolving around the issue of worship? Now, just a quick recap. Isaiah chapter 14 and verse 12 tells us that Satan was concerned about worship. Notice what he said, for those of you who weren't here the night when we covered this, I will ascend above the heights of the clouds and I will... Like who? The Most High. Lucifer wanted worship back in heaven, even before the earth was created. Now, it's interesting, when Jesus came to this world, we know that Jesus was baptized, right? And then right after Jesus' baptism, where was He led? He was led in the wilderness to be tempted, right? Now, notice in those temptations, Satan comes to Him, and look what happens. And He said to them, and this is Satan speaking, and He said to Him, all these things I will give you if you fall down and do what? Worship me. Now, it's very clear that in heaven, Satan wanted worship. When Jesus was here on this earth, what did Satan want? Worship. Now, what do you think in the last days Satan will want? Well, we see very clearly that the battle in the last days is not a battle over some physical mark on the outside of the body, but the battle is over who you worship. Now, this is going to 
help us to understand our study a little bit more this evening is who do we worship? Now, we've already looked at this question multiple times, but just for the sake of refreshing it, if Satan wants worship, how is he going to do it? In other words, if Satan were to come down and he were to come into our midst looking like this guy, how many of you would say, oh, oh yeah, sure, I, I forgot about that. Let me just fall down and worship, right? Is that what Satan is going to come and deceive us? Oh man, I didn't know the guy with a, a pitchfork and a, a spiked tail was going to like make me worship him. You know, is that the deception of the last day? I mean, did we lose our brains and go into the book of Revelation? No, that's not what happened. So we realize that Satan is not coming in the form of this creepy creature, but Revelation chapter 19 verse 20 tells us something very clear. And notice this word, and I'm going to be 100% honest with you that this word makes me feel a little bit uncomfortable sometimes because it's not something we like to think about. Notice what it says, Revelation chapter 19 and verse 20. Talking about the powers of the last day and the Antichrist power and the false prophet and all those involved, it says, by which he, what's that word? Deceived. Now, how many of you like the word deceived? How many of you have ever been deceived by someone here on this earth? Well, I know I've been deceived by someone on this earth. How many of you have ever been deceived when you went to buy a used car, right? No, I'm not, I'm not going to point fingers. But we realize that deception happens, right? And when you're deceived, does that mean when you started going into it, you thought it was a bad idea? How many of you just walk into a deception thinking, this is going to be terrible, I'm going to go along with it, right? Is that how you're deceived? No, you walk into it thinking, this is what seems to be true. It seems to be good. This seems to be a reliable vehicle. You know, I can drive this thing and it, it seems wonderful. I remember test driving one of the vehicles that I was almost deceived by, and as I turned the corner and the guy was with me in it who owned the shop, as I turned the corner, there was this loud pop and crunch, and then the car jolted. And he looked at me and he said, what was that? I said, I don't know, it's not my car. You know, what was that? He said, oh, oh, oh that was actually just one of the manhole covers on the street. Like, you just, you slid a little bit. And I said, no, no, that's, that's deception, right? And you have to be careful that you're not deceived. Now, this is what the Bible is saying. By which he deceived those who received the mark of the beast and those who worshipped His image. I just think one thing needs to be very clear is that when we look at the last days, there's not going to be a long line filed out with people standing there waiting to receive the mark of the beast, right? It's not going to be something that is obvious to others. And the thing is, is deception can happen to any of us. And what is the only thing that can keep us from deception? The Bible, right? Would you guys agree with that? No pastor... No church, no spouse, no family member, no anyone else can keep us from deception. Now, can all those things help us? Absolutely. Don't think I'm discounting it. But the Bible says, to the law and to the testimony, if they speak not according to this, it's because there is no light in them. In other words, if you show up and someone's saying something different than the Bible, who are you going to believe? The Bible or the person? Well, this is, the Bible says that in the last days, this deception is going to be so sly that many people are going to be deceived into receiving the mark of the beast. It must be clear that the mark of the beast is a matter of religious deception, not people who are just willfully jumping in ignorance, right? This is an idea that those who are in the world are going to be faced with religious deception. Now notice this next passage of Scripture. The question is, if Satan's wanted worship... And we see that it comes by deception. And he doesn't come down with a little man with a pitchfork and all these things. How is it that Satan receives worship? Notice what Revelation 13 verse 4 says. And it says, so they worshipped the dragon. Now who is the dragon? 
Revelation chapter 12, verse 9, right? It tells us that 7 through 9 tells us that the dragon is Satan himself. So it says they worshiped the dragon. Well, how did they do that? Who gave authority to the beast. And they worshiped the who? The beast. Now, you see, Satan has set up this antichrist power, or this power that's known as the beast in Revelation chapter 13, so that when that system is worshiped, who receives the worship truly? Satan, isn't that what the Bible is telling us? I'm not making these up. I would, I would like to come up with a different version of this. It would sound a little bit nicer. But no, this is what the Bible says. That those who are worshiping the dragon or those who are worshiping the beast power really are indirectly worshiping Satan. Now, don't, I, I, no, don't get me wrong, okay? I just need to make a little caveat here. If you know any friends who are involved in the Roman Catholic system, I'm not saying that they're outright Satan worshipers. You understand what I'm saying, right? But there can be deception that leads them, and Satan is making it look very sly. I know the most devoted Christians many times are those in this system, right? So they love the Lord. They're reading the Bible. They're doing the best that they know. But Satan is deceiving, right? That's what the Bible is telling us. And it tells us that in worshiping the beast power, or in the way that that system says, that the dragon is receiving worship. Now notice... Right now, how many people are worshiping the dragon through this system? Well, we're not saying, is it the whole world right now? It's not currently. I mean, many of us are sitting here, right? We're not, we're not worshiping the beast openly or anything like that. You know, we're not doing that. But notice what Revelation foretells. Revelation chapter 13 and verse 8. And it says, all who dwell on the earth will do what? Worship him. In other words, there's a day that's coming where you're either worshiping the beast or you're worshiping God. Now this is very clear. That's what the, ver the verse goes on to say, except for those whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life. You have two options. You either re you're worshiping according to the way that the Roman Catholic system tells you to worship, or you're worshiping God. Now you might be thinking, how in the world is that possible? You know, I, I see it coming. Like, how is that going to happen? Well, we're going to be looking at this a little bit more in, in, in depth but in order to see this clearly, we first have to understand one more point before we get to what is the mark of the beast. Now, we're not going to leave you hanging all night, but notice what the question is. We're looking at the mark of the beast, and the question that comes up, question number four, is do God's people also have a mark? Now, you might be saying, why in the world do we have to look at that before we look at the mark of the beast? Well, is it interesting that the mark of the beast is really nothing other than a counterfeit mark? Now, we realize that this is not a mark that's literally on the outside of our forehead, right? It's not like they have the similar mark as God, but it's the mark of the heart, right? And just as the mark of the beast says that they will be, all the world will be wondering after them and that there's just going to be this uh, religious movement, we realize that God also has a mark for his people. Did you know that? Notice with me, we're, just, we're right here in Revelation chapter 13, for those of you who have your Bibles open, Revelation chapter 13, and notice just we're going to go through the flow of thought and understand that there's not only one mark, it's just not the mark of the beast, but there's also something else, and the Bible has a specific name for it. But Revelation chapter 13, and beginning in verse 16, notice what it says. It says, He causes all, both small and great, rich and poor, free and slave, to receive a mark on their where? Their right hand and on their foreheads, that no one may buy or sell except the one who has the mark or the name of the beast or the number of his name. 
Number, verse 18 says, Here is wisdom. Let him who has understanding calculate the number of the beast, for, the, for it is the number of the man. His number is 666. Now we looked at this, but notice the very next verse. Right? There's not chapter divisions in the Bible. That's something we put in. But notice the same flow of thought. Verse 1 of chapter 14. Then I looked, and behold, a lamb standing on Mount Zion, and with him 144,000. Now we're going to deal with the 144,000 another night, but notice what it says. Having his father's name written on their what? Foreheads. Now this is interesting. You, you almost get the idea that John is looking at this vision and he sees all of the chaos happening over here. And he sees the mark of the beast taking place and the mark of the beast happens in the forehead and the hand. And he looks at that and then it's almost like it's, he shifts his view in verse 14 and he says, Then I looked and behold the lamb standing on Mount Zion and with him 144,000 and they have what written on their forehead? The Father's name written on their foreheads. Now, isn't the song that we listened to this, this evening, Write Thy Name Upon My Heart, isn't that what we want? Isn't this what the 144,000 have? You see, there's those who have the mark of the beast or those who have the mark of the Father. Now, we're going to find that the Bible uses a little more endearing term instead of mark because we already have a bad connotation with it, thinking the mark of the beast. Notice what the Bible continues to say about this. Revelation chapter 7 and verse 3. It talks about the same mark that we saw in Revelation chapter 14. Revelation chapter 7 and verse 3. And this is God speaking as He's talking to the angels holding back the four winds of heaven. Revelation chapter 7 and verse 3. And notice what it says. Revelation chapter 7 and verse 3. It says, Do not harm the earth, the sea, or the trees till we have done what? What is that word? Sealed the servants of God in their foreheads. Now this is interesting. Revelation chapter 13 and 14 talk about people who have the mark of the beast. And they have it in their foreheads and in their hands. And then there's the seal of God. And the seal of God can only be placed in one location, right? That's what we saw in Revelation chapter 14 verse 1. It was the name of God was written on their forehead. The seal of God in Revelation chapter 7 verse 3 was where? On their foreheads. And so what's interesting is that it sounds like the mark of the beast is really only a counterfeit mark of the mark that God had given to seal His people. Would you agree with that? I mean, isn't that what we're finding in Scripture here? Now we have to remember that God is not literally putting a stamp on His servants' foreheads, right? God knows who we are. God can see in the heart. God can see in the mind. And God sees those who are truly worshiping Him or those who are truly worshiping the beast. Now this is the two distinctions that we see in the book of Revelation. That there's those who worship God, and there's those who worship the beast. Now what's interesting, and we're going to kind of have to unpack this a little bit, because Revelation chapter 7 and verse 3 tells us that the servants of God are sealed in their foreheads. Now the interesting thing about the word seal literally means to take a seal, and we'll look at a picture of one, and to press it on someone's forehead. In other words, it's talking about the idea of a, a signet seal or the seal of authority. And we're going to take a look at that and see what is the seal of God, right? What does the Bible say that is going to be sealed with His followers and with His disciples? Now we're going to look at two passages of Scripture that help us kind of get the context of where the seal might be. And then we're going to dive into it and see the very specifics of the seal and where it is that we find God's seal in Scripture, right? We're going to walk through this uh, 
very systematically. And where, what is the seal of God? Now, notice this passage of Scripture with me. Notice what it says. The clicker's not enjoying itself tonight. I, Isaiah chapter 8 and verse 16. It says, seal the law among my what? Now, this is interesting. We've looked at before that the law is the very foundation of God's government, right? It's the very caring, loving character of God that keeps us, that preserves us, right? It was meant to give us enjoyable lives, life more abundantly. And God uses the term that you're to seal or to seal the law among my disciples. Okay, maybe that's just a coincidence. Do we find anywhere else in Scripture that talks about the law of God containing a sealing aspect? Now, notice just this passage of Scripture, right? We're very familiar with this as we're familiar with the New Covenant. Hebrews chapter 8, verse 10. It says, I will put my what? Laws in their minds, and I will write them on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Now, this is interesting. Isaiah chapter 8, verse 16 tells us that God wants to seal his law among his people. Hebrews chapter 8 tells us that God wants to seal his law where? In our minds and in our hearts. That's what we found in Deuteronomy chapter 6 as well, right? And we realize that the seal of God can never go on the hand, right? We never found that. It was just on the mind. In other words, it's by our willful choice that we worship God, right? Would you agree that God ever forces anyone to worship him? No, God freely gives us the option of worshiping him. Now, does the beast force people to worship him? Absolutely. We're going to find that in Revelation chapter 13 in our study Saturday morning, that the beast forces people to worship him. And so sometimes it's willingly with the mark that's on their forehead, and sometimes it's by coercion. They just go along with it with their actions, right? Not willfully, but because they're being forced to do it because they won't be able to buy and sell. Now, this is just interesting. That the Bible tells us that there's something about the law that God wants to seal on us. Now, we have to understand something really quickly that makes this a little bit clearer, is that in the Bible, when someone were, was to write a law or to give an official document, oftentimes they would include a seal from the authoritative person who sent it. Now, can you think of passages of Scripture that do that? If you can't, we're going to go ahead and look at a couple of them. Because we're going to realize that in the law of God, God has a seal, something that's authoritative to help us to know that the law is truly from God and not someone else. Now, this is a picture that you can find, and if you walk into an ancient history museum or many other museums, you'll find things that look like this. And what is this? It's a, a signet ring or a seal, right? The kings would wear it, and after writing a decree or, or a letter or an edict or something like that, they would take it, put it in wax, stamp it on the letter, showing that it's official, right? Because without the seal, anyone could have just hijacked and wrote someone else's name, right? Now, what's very interesting is we're going to go ahead and take a look at a place where we find this. Look at the book of Esther. Esther, Job, Psalms. So if you find Psalms, go, go back a couple books, and notice Esther chapter 8. We're going to look, because we don't want to just say, well, is it really true that there's a seal that happens in the Bible? Notice what happens in Esther chapter 8 and verse 8. Now we're looking at a decree from King Artaxerxes, or Ahasuerus, sorry. King Ahasuerus in, in uh, Esther chapter 8 and verse 8. And notice what happens when this edict or the law is given out by King Ahasuerus. Esther chapter 8 and verse 8. Are we there? It says, you yourselves write a decree concerning the Jews, as you please in the king's name, and do what? And seal it. Now, why would he seal it? 
with the king's signet ring for whatever is written in the king's name and, what is that next word? Sealed with the king's signet ring, no one can what? Right, now this is really interesting. No one can revoke it if that takes place. So he's saying, hey, I want you to write this law. Go ahead and draft it up for me. Write it out, whatever you think is best for the Jews. And then at the end of it, I'm going to go ahead and take my seal and stamp it there because once my seal is in the law, then people know that it's from me, right? Now this is interesting. What are the pieces that we generally see in a seal? Now we're going to look at that in just a moment. And we have to sometimes remember that we even use seals today, do, do we not? How many of you have ever gone to a notary to get something notarized, right? There has to be a seal of approval showing that it's really valid. Now, our marriage license that my wife and I have has a seal on it, right? Because it just shows it's official. I could have just printed it off of Google and said I married her, right? But we don't do those types of things in Arkansas, so just to, just to clear up your minds. But we actually have a seal, right? Now, this is the same type of thing. A seal authenticates a document. Now, what are the pieces of a seal that we can see all the way back from the Bible times up to times today. Now, this just happens to be a seal off of a gas pump from California. And I don't know about you, but I'm thankful I don't have California's gas prices. I was there when it was over $5. And notice this seal. I, I think we can see it decently well, right? And I could have put the seal of the United States. You can find other seals online, and they will all contain these similar premises of, of things here. Now, notice on this seal, first we have a name of the person. This one just happens to be Kurt. Kurt Florin. And Kurt puts his name because that's part of the seal, right? If you don't have a name, how many of you have ever gotten a letter from someone with no name and they were blasting you for something and you thought, well, I might as well just throw that away because it has no significance. I can't do anything about it if I don't know who they are, right? So the seal has the name. Then it also has the person's title. Now, what's his title? He's the director of the County of Los Angeles for the Agriculture Commissioner on Weights and Measurements. Now, if you ever have, think your job title is too long, just get his, right? You realize that there's a name and there's a title. Now, would a seal be okay with just a name and a title? Does there have to be something else? Yeah, where's your jurisdiction, right? Where are you serving? And this is the same thing. If a police officer pulls you over out of their jurisdiction, can they do anything to you? No, they can't. My brother liked to test that. But we realize that the jurisdiction here is from the county of Los Angeles. Okay, so we see the basic premise of what a seal has, right? It has the name, it has a title, and it has a jurisdiction. Now, as we see that God has given us a law, the question that comes to our minds is what is the seal that authenticates to know that this is from God? In other words, what is God's title? What is it that gives God the authority to write a law? What is it that, why is it that we keep the law of God? Why is it that we listen to the Bible? What is it that makes it authoritative for us today? Notice just a few Bible passages where Bible writers commonly agree on why it is that we worship God. Isaiah chapter 40, verse 25. It says, To whom then will you liken me? This is God speaking. Or to whom shall I be equal? Says the Holy One. Lift up your eyes on high and see who has created these things. Who brings out their, their host by what? by number. And it continues on and it says, He calls them all by name, by the greatness of His might and the strength of His power, not one is missing. Now, why is it that God says no one is equal to Him in this passage of Scripture? He says, hey, look at something. I created everything. I'm the creator of the whole universe and since I created, I'm the one who's in charge of it. Does that sound pretty fair? 
you created your children at birth, and that's why you have a little bit of authority over them, right? We, we see that normally in human life. Now, notice this next passage of Scripture. Do we see the same idea that the creatorship of God is what gives him his authority? Psalm chapter 96, verse 4. For the, law, or, for the Lord is great and greatly to be praised. He is to be feared above all gods. Now, why is it that he's to be feared above all gods? For all the gods of the people are idols, but the Lord made the one. Heavens. Now, God's saying, hey, look, your gods, they can't do anything. But I made everything. So, I'm God, right? Isn't that what he's saying here? This is the creatorship of God. The very authority of God comes from the fact that he's a creator. Now, look at Revelation chapter 4, verse 11. It says, you are worthy, O Lord, to receive glory and honor and power. Why is it that God's worthy to receive that? For you created all things, and by your will they exist and were what? Created. Now this is very interesting. The title that God gives to himself of the reason why he's authoritative is because he's a creator. Now if we realize that God's wanting to seal his law among his people, in other words, by sealing that, he's, he's sealing his people, but there's something in the law that shows the specific seal of God or the authority of God, is there something, is there one of the Ten Commandments that helps us to understand the seal of God more fully? Now, notice we're going to look at this and we're going to see that the Bible is very clear that God's seal will contain His name, His title, and His territory, right? Isn't that what we found is contained in a seal? Now, let's look at the commandment that is the only commandment that contains His name, His title, and His territory. Let's look at this together. Exodus chapter 20 and verse 8, remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy, for in six days the Lord did what? Made heaven and earth, right? He's the creator. Made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them, and he rested on the seventh day. And then it continues on, therefore the Lord blessed the seventh day and did what? He hallowed it. Now this is very interesting. God tells us that he wants to seal his people, and we're looking, what is the seal of God? Well, the Bible says that it would be found in his law, and in his law there's only one commandment that we find that contains the seal, and it's the fourth commandment, that says that it contains the name of God, the Lord your God, right? Yahweh, Elohim. We see that that's what it's saying. And the title that God is creator of heaven and earth, that's his jurisdiction, right? And then his, his, or his title, sorry. And then his jurisdiction is his territory, is heaven and earth, right? Where can God not be authoritative? God says nowhere. Heaven and earth. I want you to understand one thing is that we see that the Sabbath commandment is a seal that God is authoritative and that we are God's people. Now, notice something else. We're going to continue to walk around this idea a little bit in Scripture. Romans chapter 4, verse 11, we're going to find something that's very interesting as we continue on in our study, that the idea of a sign or a seal are synonymous with each other. Now, I'm not just going to guess on that. We're going to allow Scripture to say it. Romans chapter 4 and verse 11. And it says, and he received the sign of what? Circumcision, a seal of righteousness. Now, isn't he using that as a very synonymous language, right? The sign and the seal are the same thing. Now, Paul continues to go on through that discussion. But what we can understand is that in the Bible, a sign or a seal represent the same things. Now, so far through our study, as we've been looking, what is the seal of God? 
we've been seeing that there's, God is sealing his law on his people, but more specifically, the seal or those of God's people in the last days will be those who are walking in all of the commandments, even the seventh commandment, or even the fourth commandment, to keep the Sabbath day holy. Now, this, could this just be coincidence, or is there anything else to back this up that this is truly the sign or the seal of God? Notice what Ezekiel chapter 20, verse 12 said. Moreover, I also gave them my what? What's that word? Sabbaths to be a sign between them and me. God is saying that he gave us the Sabbath for a very specific reason. God didn't just give us the Sabbath because he didn't have anything better to do, but he wanted us to be a people that rested, right? We spent a whole day and we looked at this one, this whole topic. And God wanted us to be a people that would rest with him, that would spend time with him, right? That, God, that we would be people who didn't get so busy in our life that we had to be working so hard that we didn't forget to rest. And we realize that the Sabbath is truly the idea of righteousness by faith embodied, right? Because by faith, we see that God said it. And even though we can think, well, I need to work. I have all these things I have to do. But God says, by faith, do you trust me, right? Are you willing to rest from your labors, realizing that I'm the only one who can save you? I'm the only one who can provide for you. And God says, because of that, I'm going to give you my Sabbath as a sign between me and you. Now, notice there's another passage of Scripture, Ezekiel chapter 20 and verse 20. And it says, And hollow my Sabbaths, and they shall be a sign between me and you, that you may know that I am the Lord your God. Also in another spot, he says that he's given us the Sabbaths that we might know that he's the God who sanctifies us. In other words, we can't make ourselves holy. We can't make ourselves good. But God gives it to us as his sign that he can do it in our hearts. Now this is the same idea that it's, he's binding the law in our hearts, he's binding it on our minds, but he's not just binding nine out of the Ten Commandments, but he's binding it all in specifically the sign of God's people and the seal of God's people in the last days will be those who worship God in its fullness, worship the creator of the universe, even on the seventh day. Now this is what we see, that the Sabbath is God's sign of loyalty and faithfulness to the Creator, right? Isn't that why we keep the Sabbath? That's the only reason He gave in Genesis. You know, because I'm the Creator, I rested. Go ahead and spend that time and rest with me. And it's because God is the Creator and we recognize His authority that we do this. Now, I told you that this would be close or synonymous, very similarly related with the mark of the beast, right? We realize that the seal of God is the true and the mark of the beast is the counterfeit. Now, I want to ask you a question as we get in to look at this. What is the mark of the beast? Now, we realize that the seal of God is the Sabbath, and the question is, what is the mark of the beast? We realize it's not a stamp of 666, but what is it that this beast power talks about as, be, as being the authoritative mark of its, of its authority, or the authoritative reason that it has authority today? Notice what this says. It says, what does the Roman Catholic Church claim is the sign of its what? Authority. Now that's the, who the beast is, right? The beast is the Roman Catholic power, and we realize that we want to know what their mark of authority is, and it's very clear what it is. Notice what they say. Catholic record, September 1, 1923, Sunday is our mark of what? Authority. The church is above the Bible, and this transference of the Sabbath observance is proof of that fact. In other words, they're saying, you know, there's nowhere in Scripture that says we go to church on Sunday, and we threw that away, and that shows, that's the mark of our authority, that we can do whatever we want. Now, notice some of these other states, I'll, uh, statements. I'll just let it speak for itself. Here's the question. This is question-answer format. 
Have you any other way of proving that the church has power to institute festivals or precepts? In other words, they're asking the question, how do I know that you have this authority, right? How can you institute a festival or a precept or a law? How is it that you can do it? Notice what their answer is. Had she not so much power, she could not have done that in which all modern religionists agree with her. She could not have substituted the observance of Sunday for the first day of the week for the observance of Saturday, the seventh day of the week. A change for which there is no scriptural authority. In other words, they're saying, How do you, you're asking me if we have authority? Why are you asking me that? You can clearly see we have authority because we've changed the day of worship from Saturday to Sunday and everyone is following us. Notice what they continue to say. Faith of our fathers, Cardinal James Gibbons. You may read the Bible from Genesis to Revelation and you will not find a single line authorizing the sanctification of Sunday. The Scripture enforces the religious observance of Saturday, right? That's what we've seen from a plain reading of Scripture. The Catholic record, September 1, 1923. And this is what we, I think we looked at this one already. Is this correct? Yeah, we looked at this one. I forgot and put it in twice. Maybe it was just so good. But notice this one. We'll, we'll continue on. And it says, the observance of Sunday by the Protestants is an homage they pay in spite of themselves to the authority of the what? The Catholic Church. Now, I'm not, I didn't write these things. I'm just here telling you what the beast power is saying on its own. That they're saying, my very authority is the fact that I can make the world follow me instead of following the Bible. You want to ask how I have authority to do things? Well, look at the whole world that's following me. Why do you have to ask any more questions? And they're saying that the, the, the Protestants are paying homage to me because every week they're doing what I set them to do. They're not following what Scripture says. Now notice, this is, these are some powerful quotations and we just want to make sure that we're doing a fair understanding to this idea. It says, perhaps the boldest thing, the most revolutionary change the church ever did happened in the first century. The holy day, the Sabbath was changed from Saturday to Sunday. Not from any directions noted in Scripture, but from the church's sense of its own what? Power. People who think that the Scripture should be the sole authority should logically become Seventh-day Adventists. Now, I'm not, I didn't put that in there just because I want to support what I'm saying, but what's interesting is the fact that they say, hey, look, there's nothing in Scripture that says that the Bible Sabbath is Sunday. And if you want to follow what the Bible says, then you need to logically worship on the Seventh-day Sabbath like the Seventh-day Adventists do. And it continues on, of course the church claims that the change was her act, talking about the change of the Sabbath. And the act is a mark of her ecclesiastical power and authority in religious matters. Now this is very interesting. We see that the seal of God from the Bible is surrounded by the Seventh-day Sabbath. That period of resting, spending time with our Savior, knowing our Creator, seeing the goodness of God. And the mark of the beast, why should we be surprised that it's nothing but the opposite? It's trying to pull our minds away from the day that God has sanctified and made holy and saying, why don't you go ahead and just do what I say instead of what God says? Now, when we ignore God and we do what we want or what the beast wants, who's receiving the worship? The Bible has made it clear that it's, it, this is a, a compromising issue or a, de, a, a, a deceptive issue in the last days. God's mark is the Sabbath and the Roman church's mark is none other than Sunday as they claim by themselves. Now there's some people here wondering, well, do I have the mark of the beast? Who has the mark of the beast now? Well, we can know that there is no one on the face of the earth right now who has the mark of the beast, right? And you say, how do you know that? Well, Revelation chapter 13 talks about this happening, Sunday observance becoming legislated by government. 
and we'll look at that a little bit more on Saturday morning, but we realize only when it's legislated, only when it's made mandated, that then someone has, everyone will know what the truth is and we have a choice to make. The Bible doesn't say, well, you should go out and just hang yourself because you think you're wrong right now, I mean, because you have the mark of the beast now. No, 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 that's not the case. But we now have the chance to decide, and Sunday, Sunday observance, when finally enforced by law, becomes the mark of the beast, but it's not until then. You know, we looked at Revelation chapter 13 and verse 8, and it says that all who dwell upon the earth will worship him, and we wonder how in the world could Satan get everyone to worship him? How could even the Catholic Church get everyone to follow the Catholic Church in the last days? How is it possible? You know, I'm a Protestant, and we're happy to be Protestants, and we have no desire to go back. And the church says, you don't have to. All you have to do is follow my authority. Follow the thing that I change. Choose me over the traditions, the traditions of men over the Word of God, right? And by doing that, you're choosing to follow the things of the beast instead of the things of God. Now, this is a very sobering message, and we realize that there's coming a time that this is what the Bible talks about in Revelation chapter 13, where it will be legislated by force. And notice the language here. And he causes all, both small and great, rich and poor, free and bond, to receive a mark in their right hand or in their foreheads, and that no man might buy or sell, save he that has the mark of the beast, or the number of the beast, or the number of his name. You see, the language used here is there's coercion involved, right? It's not just, hey, follow me if you want to, but if you don't do it, you're not going to be buying or selling. Now, when that comes to the head, which I think we, we see that it's wrapping up in this earth's history, and things are moving this way, when that happens and this starts to be legislated, we realize that it'll be the mark of the beast. But my question is, is why would we wait so long to follow God until it becomes more difficult? You know, if we can't do what's right with God now, how can we be faithful later? If we can't run with the footmen, how can we run with the horses, right? You've heard that said. How is it that we can be faithful to God in the hard times if we can't be faithful when it's easy? Who's putting a gun to our head now? No one, right? Who's making it difficult? Sure, we have difficult challenges and things that we might have been raised with, but Jesus asked the question, and he, he says this to the Jews, and it, it pricks my heart as I think about this, and I'm not preaching down to anyone, I'm preaching just what the Bible is saying, and it's so sobering what Jesus talks about here in Matthew chapter 15, verse 9. And it says, in vain they worship me, teaching as doctrines the what? The commandments of men. My friends, why do we do what we do? Are we doing what we do because this is what the Bible says? Or are we simply just following the traditions of men that have been set up over time and now we don't want to break out of the rut? It's difficult. Some people wonder, how is it possible that this could happen? When is, you know, how is it possible that all of the majority of the world could be wrong in worshiping on Sunday if it's really Saturday? Have you ever wondered that question? You know, if this is true, why is so many people wrong? I want to ask you one simple question. In the time of Noah, was the majority right or wrong? I'm just being honest here. The majority was wrong. In the time of Jesus, was the majority right or wrong? Well, it was only Jesus hanging there on the cross and everyone else was killing him, right? The majority was wrong. In the time of the last days, is the majority of people going to be right or wrong? Wrong. My friends, we can't allow what, what people think or what the majority is doing. Jesus says narrow is the way that leads to life, right? That He is the door, that He's the only way there, and it's only by following Jesus that we can have assurance that we're right with God. You see, I don't believe that it's by accident that the Lord's brought us together to study in His Word, right? 
God is trying to clear us from the deception that's going to be taking place in this world. He wants us to be ready for that day. He wants us to make a knowledgeable choice saying, I'm either going to follow God or I'm going to continue to knowingly follow the system of the Antichrist. And God is trying to bring us to a decision not because He doesn't love us, but because He loves us, right? God doesn't want any to perish, but that all should come to repentance. And He's trying to draw us to this idea. And He's pleading for us that we would experience it. Notice the words of Jesus. And I think we just have to ponder on the words of Jesus as we close. Notice what He says in John chapter 4, verse 24. Jesus speaks of a day that's coming. And He says, God is a spirit. And they that worship Him must worship Him in what? Spirit and in truth. You know, a lot of people say, well, I'm, I'm worshiping God and, and, you know, it doesn't really matter about the smaller things, right? It doesn't really matter about the truth of it as long as I love Jesus. But what Jesus is saying, I want you to know something. That I want you to worship me because you love me, but also according to the things I'm asking, right? I want you to worship me in spirit and in truth. And this is the pleading of Jesus as we're hearing this message this evening. You know, there was one person in the Bible who decided to worship according to spirit but not according to the truth. Do you know who I'm talking about? Genesis chapter 4. Genesis chapter 4. Turn with me there. Genesis chapter 4 and we pick up the story of Cain. Cain and Abel are there in Genesis chapter 4 and God had given very clear distinction of what was supposed to happen with the sacrifice that each one of them were to make. Cain and Abel both knew what was right. They both knew what God was calling them to do. Abel knew that God was asking them to make an animal sacrifice, right? Because Jesus was the Lamb of God which was slain from the foundation of the world. But I want to ask you a question. Even though they both knew it, did they both do it? We see that only Abel was obedient. Now what's very interesting is, is Cain in, in wanting to worship God in spirit, but not wanting to follow the truth of what God says, instead of bringing a, a live offering to sacrifice like God had asked, he brought the fruits of his own labor, right? He brought the fruits of the ground. How many times instead of following God by grace through faith and just being faithful to him in the small things that he calls us to, worshiping him on the day he asked, do we try to replace it with our own works? Well, I won't do what you say, but I'll, I'll make up my own time. And we notice that this is what Cain does. And notice what verse 7 says. Verse 7 says, you can hear the heart of the appeal of God. God says, if you do well, will you not be what? Accepted. And if you do not do well, sin lies at the door and it desire, its desire is for you, but you should what? rule over it. You see, God knew that Cain was at a crossroad in his life. That he had a choice that was ahead. And the question was, is what was he going to do? If he does well, God is going to clearly accept. You know, God is not there to reject anyone. And God is saying, I'm telling you also that Satan is trying to get you to fall. And if you continue in that, why are you surprised that we're you know, experiencing the pain and suffering that God is, is telling us that we would? And God is telling us that we have a choice that's ahead. And my friends, I believe that we have a choice that's even and more than just ahead. We have a choice to make that's now. Why do we do what we do? And I, I, I'm just thankful that we've had 16 nights together. Because I'm not telling you this because I think I'm better than anyone. I'm not telling you this because I, I have something to gain out of it. I hope you know that I don't get paid for these meetings, right? Actually, we pay for them. 
You know, we're paying to rent the hall. We're paying to do, we, we, we're not doing this because I have a, a personal advantage. I could be running in the streets doing whatever I wanted. I could do something else. But the reason why I'm here is because I realize that the Bible is true. And I know when the Lord converted my heart that there became one thing that was important to me. If God says it, I want to believe it. If God doesn't say it, I want nothing to do with it. And that's the only reason why I'm standing here to preach to you today. Because you have the same desire. That's the only reason why we're together. Because God is leading us into all truth. And God is asking us the question, are you going to continue to do the things you've always done just because you've always done it and because that's what tradition says? Or are you going to say, Lord, I want to do what you say. I want to walk by faith, not by sight. I don't want to walk by feeling. I want to worship you in spirit and truth. You hear the call of Jesus where Jesus says, if you love me, keep my commandments. Right? It's Jesus, I love you for the sacrifice that you made. I know that I would be in the miry pits of sin if it wasn't for everything that you've given. And by your grace, I want to follow you. And Lord Jesus, I want to make the choice to follow you and not others. The appeal is simple. What are we going to be doing with the rest of our lives? We know the Lord has brought us into knowledge. And you might be thinking, well, I didn't want to know this. Remember one thing that the Bible tells us. That the Spirit leads us into all truth. And that it's the truth that sets us free. You see, God is not trying to, to change our lives in a way that hurts us, but God is trying to help us to realize that there's truth that'll set us free, that'll give us joy in our hearts, that'll give us deeper walk with God. And the question is, are we going to continue to follow what church leaders say, or are we going to follow the Jesus of the Bible? Are we going to follow what Jesus tells us, or are we going to follow what we think is best? This media was brought to you by Audioverse a website dedicated to spreading God's Word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.